some of you might be thinking, how can he be going up there to preach and he doesn't have a Bible with him? Well, I have an iPhone and I have an iPad. I have hundreds of Bibles up here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new day, man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so this message is entitled, as I'm sure you all know, It's Good to Be a Man. We know that it's important for us to work through this topic because the title caused a number of you to get your back up, didn't it? <laughs> Even whether you, see, I agree, I agree with that. But why do people say things that I agree with that embarrass me? <laughs> In a society where that kind of response is possible, it's important to make such a point and to tie it in with the gospel. It's important to make the point that it's good to be a man, and it's important to tie it in with the gospel. And if you thought the title implied that it is therefore bad to be a woman, then it is also necessary to tie this topic in with rudimentary logic. Um, <laughs> which we hope, I hope to get to. It reminds me of a big controversy, no joke, this was a big controversy a year or so ago on college campuses all, all across America. And this controversy was caused by some inflammatory anonymous flyers that simply said, it's okay to be white. It's okay to be white. Now that was incendiary and people, you know, well, but what people are not objecting to what's said, they're objecting to what you think, they think you're going to say next, right? So when you say it's good to be a man, and what's, what's coming? Where are they going? What's the, what's the trajectory? Well, if we're Christians, the, tra the traje trajectory must always be back to the Word. What does the Bible say? We live in muddled times, and so I do want to clarify one thing at the front end. It is good to be a man, provided you are someone who is supposed to be a man. That's an important qualification. <laughs> <laughs> It's good to be a man, provided you ought to be. If you're a woman, it's bad to be a man. If you're a man, it's bad to be a woman. It is bad for little yellow chickadees to try to become a herd of buffalo. This is because all such attempts will be unsuccessful. By definition, God's... One of the things we learn from Genesis is that God gives assignments. God gives assignments. And when God gives assignments, He gives them by dividing. Right, God is a divider. So in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And at that moment, when God, at the first moment, of, uh, first moment of creation, God said, let there be light, that meant that at that instant, there was now two things. There was God, and there was not God. Before, it was only God. Now, there's a division. There's God and not God. There's the creator and the created. And there's an infinite division between creator and created. But God was not done. He goes on to divide evening and morning. He goes on to divide light from darkness. He goes on to divide land and sea, sun and moon, male and female. God just divides. God keeps dividing. We're going to get to that. We're going to touch on that in just a moment. When God created the world, he repeatedly said that every feature of it was good. So God, God creates the world. And, it's, he, and if God says the whole created order is good, which he says at the end of the creation week, then that means that it's good to not be God. Right? It's good for that which is not God to not be God. It's good for that which is creaturely to remain creaturely. It's good to be what God made you. It's good to be 
to, it's good to stand where God puts you. It's good to remain at the station, at the post where God assigned you. So, when God created the world, he repeatedly said that every feature of it was good. Light and dark, Genesis 1-4. Land and sea, Genesis 1-10. Grass and herbs, Genesis 1-12. Sun and moon, Genesis 1-18, and so on. It is not until we get to Genesis 2-18 that God says that something was not good. Right? Everything good, good, good. And then he gets to the not good. That particular not good was pronounced over a solitary male. So God created a bachelor. And God said, not good. <laughs> okay. land, land and sea, that's good. Light and dark, that's good. Sun and moon, that's good. Single guy, not good. <laughs> now, lest you think, I thought this talk was entitled, It's Good to Be Man. <laughs> yes. That, partic that particular not good was pronounced over a solitary male, but not because he was bad, but rather because he was incomplete. Not because he was bad, but because God was not yet done. So there is the good, 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 not finished. Right? Do you see that? Good, 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 not finished. Not good because I'm not done. And we're going to get to that part in a moment. This, there is an incompleteness about Adam, even though everything's good, even though there's no sin in the world, even, there, even though there's no rebellion, nothing like that, God says it's not good. So let's back up. It's good to be a man. There's three points I want to make here. So it is good to be a man. It is good to be a man, with the proviso, with the caveat that I gave before. When the OB says it's a boy, this is good news. And it's good news because it is a boy. We're receiving a gift from God. God gave us a boy, and so it's good news to say it's a boy. It's not, uh, it's not right to, at that moment to say, oh, but we wanted a girl. Or if the OB says it's a girl, that's good news too. To when, he, when in the delivery the doctor says it's a girl, that too is good news and for the same reason. That's good news also and for the same reason. It's good to receive whatever physical gift God has determined to give. What God does in this regard is always good. God isn't messing up in your case. God does everything right. God does nothing wrong. God creates the way he wants to create. And my quarrel is not with my, uh, you know, uh, the astrology section of the newspaper. My quarrel is not with fate. My quarrel is not with unseen forces. Everything has to do with God. God is the one who governs all things. So, it's good to be a man, provided you're supposed to be a man. It's good to be a man. It's good for this boy to be on his way to being a man, provided he's a boy. Right? If he's a boy, it's good to be a boy on his, way to, on his way to manhood. If it's a girl, it's good to be a girl on her way to womanhood. So, what God does this way is always good. It's good to be a man. It's good to be male, provided that's what God has done. The second thing, there's a second usage of being a man that's important to emphasize. It's good, it is good to enact the role of a man when that is called for. All right? It's good to enact the role of a man when that is called for. Because we live in a world where sin and disobedience are all around us. It is possible for a man to be a male 
It's possible for a man to be a man and yet not play the man. It's possible for a man to be a man in that he's male, he's not a woman, but he doesn't play the man. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says this, Watch ye, stand in the faith, and, he, and Paul is saying this to the whole Corinthian church. He's saying, this is going to be in the next point. He says to, to the whole Corinthian church, men and women both, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Right? The glory of young men, it says in 1 John, is their strength. Act your part. Step into the breach. Stand up straight. Do, it, do what is right. Okay? Play the man. Um, this is a good that, is, that the process of sanctification grows a Christian man up into. Right? This, is the, this is a good thing that we have not yet attained. So when uh, every male here has already attained to that, right? You've attained to it because it was a gift. God gave you what you are. God gave you your body. God gave you your identity. Obey your chromosomes. So when you do that, you have to say, all right, what has God, what has God called men to do? What are men supposed to do, and how are they supposed to do it? And when a man seriously attempts to step into that role, and he seriously attempts to learn what it's supposed to do, what, what that role is, that's a good thing. A problem with this, when a man is neglecting this uh, requirement, this commandment from God, uh, a problem or rebellion or a sin in this respect can take on many manifestations. It can take, on, uh, it can take the form of transvestitism, uh, dressing up in women's clothes, to cowardice in battle, to abdication in relationships, uh, just you know, taking up oxygen, um, guys and girls, you know, guy is going out with a girl, and what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? <laughs> I'm not sure, what do you want to do? I just want to serve you. Do something, she says. <laughs> Decide something. <laughs> Grow a spine. <laughs> don't, excuse me. <laughs> All right, so his failure in that regard is abdicating in a relationship. He's not, he's not taking the initiative. He's not leading. Now, there's, there's, two, uh, there's a distinction uh, to be made here. There's biblical Christian leading, where you are leading for the sake of those you are leading, the way Jesus led the disciples and died for them. All right, that's one kind of leading. And then there's the leader who wants to be in charge of everything and just boss everybody around. That's a self-centered, self-absorbed leading. It's not leading, it's just bossing. Right? So we're not talking about bossing, we're talking about leading. So a problem here can um, take on very various forms of effeminacy, cowardice, abdication, um, just, not, just not being a stand-up guy the way you ought to be a stand-up guy. So the first the first point, it's good to be a male uh, if God determined that. It's good to be female if God determined that. It's not good to be enviously look over the fence at what the other, uh, what the other person has. It's wrong, sinful, uh, rebellious for a man to wish that he were a woman. It's wrong, sinful, rebellious for a woman to wish that she were a man. That's not what God wanted for you. If God, if God had uh, known in his perfect wisdom that that would have been better, that's what would have happened. It didn't happen, so what you have is better. So it's good to be a man. It's good to be a woman. 
provided that's what God has assigned. Secondly, it's good for men to, to uh, grow up into uh, the role that God has assigned to the one who is the man. Then third, last, it's good to be man, capital M. It's good to be man, using the word in its generic sense. In this sense, both men and women are called to be man. In this sense, both men and women are called to be man, capital M. And that's the text I read, Genesis 5-2. I'm going to read it again slowly. Male and female created he them, two, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. Hmm. In the day when they were created. Go over that again. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. The word Adam simply means mankind. Um, So when God came down to the garden and said, hey, mankind, (laughs) he's looking for Adam. In other words, Adam was Adam. But it is also true that in another sense, Adam and Eve were Adam. Are you with me? Adam and Eve were Adam in the generic sense. It It was not sexist for Neil Armstrong to say one small step for uh, man, one giant leap for mankind. Right? That's, he wasn't excluding the women. The way language has worked from Genesis on, there is this inclusionary sense. If you, if you want to chase, if you want to run down the, uh, if you're linguistically gifted and you want to run down the wormhole, um, Adam was created out of the dust of, dust of the ground. So Eve, Eve was created out of Adam's, Adam's side. So Eve was created out of Adam. Adam was created out of the ground. The Hebrew word for ground is Adama. Right? Adama. And it's a feminine ending. Right? So feminine ending, Adama. Adam is taken out of the dust of the ground. Then Eve is taken out of the side of Adam. Now this is a biblical principle. This is the biblical principle beneath a woman taking her husband's last name. That's, uh, that would be the biblical defense I would show for it. My wife was Nancy Greensides. That was her maiden name. We got married. She became Nancy Wilson. She took my name on. Now, this is, runs clean contrary to what many feminists want to do, which is to keep their father's name. <laughs> oh. Man means a guy, so man means a guy, and man also means mankind, men and women both. Brothers means the guys, and brothers also means brothers and sisters. You don't have to have a new trendy translation of the Bible that says brothers and sisters, or have God say, oh, humankind, oh, uh, you carbon-based bipedal units. (laughs) So... What do we do? How, does this, how is this driving toward the gospel? One time in the 19th century uh, in England, an aristocratic woman sniffed at the idea of an invitation to receive Christ at the end of a church service. Some of you may have grown up in churches that have that practice. I, I uh, did, where at the end of every service there was an invitation to rededicate your life or to join the church or to become a Christian. And we'd sing a hymn or, and 
people would come down forward to be, become Christians. Um, that, would be, that was the invitation system, and that was uh, developed early on in the 19th century. Well, this aristocratic woman sniffed at the idea of needing to go down to the front of the church like that to become a Christian. I don't need to do it, she said. Charles Spurgeon, great uh, London preacher, who was no friend of the invitation system, he was not a friend of that system of doing things, replied something like, it is true that you don't have to go down to the front of the church to become a Christian, but you do. <laughs> okay, right. now what's he saying? Yeah, I, I agree with you on the merits. If we're talking about the invitation system in the abstract, I agree with you. But you don't want to go down there because of your pride. And that means you've got to submit that point of pride. You've, you've got to surrender that point of privilege. So that was her issue. But our issues are different. Spurgeon point, Spurgeon's point, however, still remains. Different generations have different temptations and sins. In our day, egalitarianism is rampant. Egalitarianism is simply equalism. Right? Everything's got to even out. Everything's got to be equal. Everybody's got to have the same income. Everybody's got to have the same uniform. Everybody's got to look the same. Everything's got, every, you know, we, that's egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is rampant, and it's a sin. It's envy-driven sin, completely wrong-headed. Feminism is egalitarianism applied to sexual roles. Feminism is simply egalitarianism, a subset. It, feminism is a subset of um, egalitarianism applied to, to sex and gender, just as Marxism, communism, socialism is egalitarianism applied to uh, finances, money. Okay, so egalitarianism takes many forms. Feminism is assumed throughout the unbelieving world. If you challenged, take your, uh, an average class where feminism might come up at the U of I here. If you are a student here and you challenged it and said, I don't believe feminism is right, as far as everybody else in the class is concerned, you have three heads and you drool. You, you are a problem, mostly to yourself. So, feminism is assumed throughout the unbelieving world, and I would argue that in the conservative Christian wor world, a form of feminism light is surreptitiously assumed. In other words, we don't go whole hog, we just adopt the milder forms of it. Now, I'm on feminism, but I'm going to come back to uh, what it means to be a man in a moment. But this, this is addressing what I said at the beginning in the introduction, when I was talking about uh, how, we, how we so easily get our feathers ruffled when someone looks like they're about to say something that conflicts with the sexual orthodoxy of the unbelieving world. And so Christian, uh, women, Christian uh, women will say something like this to themselves. And remember the aristocratic woman that, that Spurgeon was talking to. She'll say, a woman doesn't have to wear a denim homeschool jumper to be a godly Christian. That's quite true, but you do. <laughs> you do, because that you've just told God, yeah, this is something I've learned over the years. Don't tell God what you're not going to do. <laughs> Don't, just, just stop it. Bad career move. You know, before we were married, uh, Nancy, uh, who was converted here at the U of I, my wife, walked all, took a long walk and walked all over Moscow telling the Lord she'd go to the uttermost part of the earth. I'll go, 
I'll be a missionary. I'll go anywhere. I will go anywhere but Moscow. Get me out of this town. Get me out of this town. And lo, 2019, right here. Don't, <laughs> don't tell God what you're not going to do. When you, when you draw a line, say, oh, I don't have, the Bible doesn't say I have to do that. And you can be exactly right that the Bible doesn't say you have to do that. But you've got a particular reason for drawing that line that way and with that kind of vigor. The Bible doesn't say that I have to wear my hair in a cute ponytail. Well, that's true. It doesn't. But if it did, would you? Are you saying, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to settle in my mind beforehand what I'm willing to and not willing to surrender. And here's the deal. As I'm coming to present the gospel to you, uh, I need to tell you that God doesn't deal. God doesn't negotiate like that. Uh, the claims of Christ are total. And we have to come to him with the resolve to have no problem passages. Nothing in the scriptures. Um, once the exegesis is done, once I know what the Bible is actually saying, once I know that this is actually what it is being taught, that's the way it is. Right? I, why? Because I'm a Christian. Because Jesus treated the Bible that way, and I've decided to follow Jesus. If, I've, if I'm following Jesus, then I'm going to follow Jesus in his attitude toward Scripture. So the issue is, it, the issue is not, do you agree with X, Y, Z? The issue is, put it into a hypothetical. Put it into a hypothetical. If the Bible taught X, Y, Z, would I be there and gladly? I don't, know, I don't know what it is yet. I don't know whether it, that's what the teaching is. But whatever it is, I want it. Whatever God teaches, I want that. Whatever God says, I want to embrace it. Now, repenting the sins of other generations is a low-cost activity. It's also very popular. It's also very popular for reasons that should be obvious to any Christian who is suitably cynical. But repenting of the sins that are common in our era and not only common, but applauded, is another thing entirely. Right? So it's, it's relatively, comparatively easy to repent of your, of your sins. It's really, really hard to repent of your virtues, the things that you thought you were doing right, the things that you think the society around you gets right. At least they get, at least they get the care for the environment right. No, they don't, but that's another thing. Um, that's another topic, another time. But, but you say, at least they get that right. Well, fine. Okay, okay. If they got it right, then you should embrace it because the Bible teaches it. But you, you shouldn't say, uh, you shouldn't embrace things that you think are right and boast in your virtue. So, quite a number of you need to repent of your tolerance, repent of your liberation, your freedom from traditional norms, or your sensitivity. These are all things that we think are good. You know, we know that we're supposed to repent. We're Christians. We know that we're supposed to repent of greed or lust or, or covetousness, that sort of thing. But oftentimes we don't know that when we're embracing certain virtues, we're actually embracing the world's system of value. And that's worldliness, and we need to repent of that. In other words, repenting of your self-identified virtues can be a real challenge. The gospel, the gospel is the message of the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He accomplished this great work so that we could be freed first from the blindness brought about by sin, which is repentance. Uh, when you see your sin for what it is for the first time, that's repentance. 
your eyes are opened and you see, oh, that's what that is. So that's, he frees you first from blindness, and uh, you are forgiven, secondly, for the guilt of the sin, which is conversion. For the first, we don't see the sin as sin. We think it's virtuous until God opens our eyes to it. For the second, we don't see the guilt of sin as something we can get away from, and until Christ comes, we cannot get away from it. So we have to, be, we have to get ourselves out of the world's definition of what, uh, an upright man looks like. Right? What, are you, what are you supposed to do? Right? What are you supposed to do if you're a man, according to the world? Well, apologize for breathing is the, fir- the first thing. <laughs> Taking up space. Um, there, the world doesn't have a high view of what it means to be a man. Have you heard the phrase toxic masculinity? Yeah, toxic masculinity. Well, we need to... Um, the, the world says, you be careful, you be careful, you be careful. And we, well, the first thing you have to do is, is flip the switch, shut that whole dialogue off, and then say, the Bi- does the Bible teach men to guard against certain sins? Does the Bible address the men and say, you know, you're, you're prone to, you're, you're going to be susceptible to this sin and this sin and this sin. Does the Bible give tailor-made directed di- directives to men as men? Absolutely, and to women as women. What you need to be doing, however, is looking to the Bible to define your sin so you can repent of it, so you can turn to Christ, right? So, the Bible teaches... Now, when you do, the Bible teaches us that the gospel, being efficacious, will put us totally out of kilter with the spirit of the age. Okay? What the, this is what's going to happen. When you're, con- when you're converted, if you're well saved, if you're born again... And it's not just an evangelical cliche, um, but it's the thing that happens. You're, you're converted to God. Your sins are forgiven. You're made new. You're, clean, you're justified. You're saved. You know, all, those, all of those traditional uh, theological cliches, they're truisms because they were true. They, they point to something. And that something has happened. When that something has happened, you're totally out of kilter with the spirit of the age. Jesus died and rose, and that is why you will be terminally uncool forever. Glory. <laughs> and you say, well, I, what I want to do, I would, I'd like to be a cool Christian. I would, like, I would like to be the kind of Christian who believes all that Bible stuff and never, and, and never embarrasses anybody in sociology class. I want to be that kind of Christian, the kind that goes to hell. You say, well, Jesus said, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him. I will deny him. Jesus is our Lord. He's our authority. If we're Christians, Jesus is Lord. Jesus died and rose, and that's why people who follow him are always out of step. Always. Now, they're not out of step forever. They die. They do a lot of good, despite being terribly unpopular. They do a lot of good. And then they die, and then 50 years later, people start building memorials to them because of this great prophet who once walked among us. We can afford to build a marble mausoleum to him now because he's dead and can't mess anything up. (laughs) We'll we'll honor him now. Doesn't Jesus talk about that? He says, you build the tombs of the prophets. And And he said, by building the tombs of the prophets, you testify that you are the children of those who killed the prophets. 
That's what people do, right? You say, well, that's a little harsh. That's a little unfair. Well, if you went through Washington, D.C., not that I recommend it, but <laughs> you went through Washington, D.C., and you rounded up every person that there's a memorial to that you could find. Jefferson Memorial, Washington Monument, you know, all of those guys. Every statue, rounded them all up. And these are statues honoring these people and took these people all into Congress. They would all be run out of town on a rail. Every last one of them. Because, and this, this is in the city named after one of them. So it's, it's the same thing in evangelical circles. We name things after John Knox and we name them after William Tyndall and we name them after Calvin and we name them after Wycliffe and we, do, we name and that if any of these guys came back from the dead and paid a visit to the, the places that have their name on the big sign out front, there would be anguished cries and broken furniture and sirens and it would be us. <laughs> so part of the whole point of the gospel, part of the whole point of the gospel is to get you out of the mainstream. You need to get out of the mainstream. Remember that it is often the case that the mainstream goes right over the falls. That's, that's where most of the river goes right over the falls. So, what's the nature of the gospel that will do this thing to you? What is the nature of the gospel that will do this thing? Now, God takes you from where you are, not from where you should have been. God takes you from where you are, not from where you should have been. And I want to have this message declared to you now where you are. Where you are is a mess. Right? That's where you are. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm, I've already been converted. I don't need... No, people who are already converted always need to hear the gospel again. It's... People who aren't converted need to hear the gospel. People who are converted need to hear the gospel. By nature, Paul says, and he's speaking to Christians, by nature we are all objects of wrath. We're all a mess. We're all a total mess. God sent his son to take on the, on the form of a servant. He was the second person of the Trinity, the Logos of God, the eternal word of God, and he took, form, he took shape in the womb of a virgin. He was born into this sorry world, and he lived a perfect, sinless life. And then at the end of that perfect, sinless life, lasting about 33 years, he ran afoul of the authorities, and it wasn't an accident. He challenged them, basically, to a duel. He, he, he wasn't trying to slip away quietly. He went into Jerusalem, and he uh, started a big fight in the temple, turning over uh, tables and chasing the animals out. And he, Jesus was playing brinksmanship with the, uh, the religious authorities. So they had him betrayed. They crucified him. And when they crucified him, they, were, they didn't know it. If Paul says, if the rulers of this age had known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh, they didn't know. They didn't understand that they were wrecking Satan's kingdom. If you'd stopped one of the Roman soldiers and said, what are you doing? He could have said, he could, could have been able to say truthfully, I'm wrecking Satan's kingdom. If you had stopped the devil who was inciting the mob to, to yell, crucify him, and said to the devil, what are you doing? He said, I'm destroying my own kingdom. I'm, I'm pulling down deep heaven on my head. I'm, it, so what happened was, Jesus, when he died, cried out, it is finished. When he died, the, the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. That was the Holy of Holies behind the, the veil, the place where no sinner could go. No sinner could go. The high priest went there once a year, Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. He would go in there to present the, uh, 
to present the blood of the sacrifice. So one mortal, one sinner could go in there one day out of the whole year. And they would tie a rope around his ankle in case he had a heart attack or something and died in there so they could retrieve him without anybody else going in there. That, they took that very seriously. That was the place where sinners could not go. And when Jesus died, that veil was torn in two. And God said, in effect, to absolutely everybody, come in. Come in. Now, if you come here, the world that you're leaving is not going to think much of you. The world that you're leaving, the world you're leaving behind, you're going to be out of step with for the rest of your life. You're going to be terminally, terminally unhip. It's not gonna, you're not going to fit in. People are going to like you and respect you, but you're going to always be angular. It's not going to be quite right. Stop trying to sandpaper the differences between you and the world. It doesn't work. So if you're a Christian, you can't overcome those differences. And if you become a Christian, there's nothing you can do about the differences that are going to be created. So the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the objective gospel uh, message. Outside that gospel message is the subjective response. So the preacher declares Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ resurrected, and Christ ascended. That's the message. The subjective response of the individual hearer, that would be you, is to hear that message, to see Christ uh, publicly uh, portrayed before you as crucified, and your commanded response is to look on that and believe. If you look on that, if you hear those words and believe, your life is going to be transformed, turned inside out, upside down. And you're going to be fitted for another world. You're going to be fitted for another kingdom. You're, God's going to start the work of fitting you for heaven. And the more you're fitted for heaven, the less fit, fitted you are for here. You're, it's going to be uh, a, a challenge. So what is the nature of the gospel that would do this thing to you, for you, in you? through you, surrounding you. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.